0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Eyes, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we're in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast, it's to... Look at the games that my guests and I are enjoying playing to talk about big industry events and talk to the people that make these games. And today it's a little bit of all three of those. Now, for those of you who've been following Cast Ice on my Facebook page, you have seen over the last year, in fact, two years, I've been slowly building up a fairly large collection of Vietnam models. And I've just recently finished building an entire table worth of Jungle terrain. And there is a very good reason for that. Besides wanting to play Pacific Games for Bolt Action, obviously. I have always uh, loved uh, a conflict. Uh, I, I feel weird saying loved, and I'm sure my guest will help me with this in a second, given that it is a fairly modern conflict. But one that has always captivated me since being a child in the 80s and watching movies like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket and countless other classics, the Green Berets sings to mind, is the Vietnam War. And I have wanted to play those conflicts on the tabletop ever since I was a kid. In fact, when I was playing with my G.I. Joes, occasionally, given that I had some G.I. Joes in green uniforms, I would act some of those out. I did love the Nam comics as a kid from Marvel Comics. And so I always wanted a tunnel rat, for example, and and various troopers. I wanted the the grenadier with the grenade launcher. I just thought it was so iconic. Now, we have several companies who have been making these models for a while, and joining me today is the man behind one of those companies and probably the most prolific range out there. Not only do they make a fantastic range of, of Vietnam models, but models in general... But now they're coming out with a rule set to match, allowing me to play the conflicts on the tabletop that I've wanted to since I was a kid. Of course, the rule set I'm talking about is Bohica, and we'll get into what that stands for in a minute. But Paul from Empress Miniatures, welcome to Cast Dice. It is awesome having you. How are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you, and thank you very much for the invite. It's, it's- Quite exciting
0: to be here. Oh, mate. Speaking of exciting, the Bohica rule set, just from the pictures and just the little snippets that you've been dropping on the new Facebook page for that, it, it looks fantastic. And as this episode goes live, we should be seeing it in the wild. Uh, it should be releasing around the same time this episode goes out. Now, this is something that you've been working on for a long time. If I understand, and I I did listen to your interview on our old buddy Ian's show, The Odd-Sided Dice Podcast, can you talk to us a little bit about the history of Empress Miniatures, particularly around how that links to your Vietnam range? Because that was sort of the impetus that started the whole thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah. um, Empress Miniatures was officially started um, at Company House, ooh, 14 years ago. Um, And it it came out, as does a lot of board games companies when we established, it came out of um, hobbyists playing a game, uh, getting together, and deciding to start a company, or start a range, or get some figures, because he couldn't get what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And and in this instance, my regular gaming buddy, um, Keith, um, we were playing games and we wanted to get into doing Vietnam. And we looked around and we couldn't find a range of figures that we liked, Uh, just a personal thing. And we kept talking about talking about it. And Christine, my wife came in, listened to some of this and said, why don't you just get the figures sculpted? Which we laughed merrily and said, it's not that easy. And we discussed it and looked at each other and suddenly realized, okay, I've got my wife who's telling me to spend money on Toy Soldiers. Mm -hmm. I can't run away from this one. Um, Keith had a chat. We agreed. We set up a company. We got a sculptor that we vaguely knew, uh, Keith more than I did, called some guy called Paul Hicks. (laughs) And we met him, and um, we sat down to talk about Vietnam, and we came out of the room deciding that we were going to do a Zulu war range um so like Naturally. fantastically yeah yeah i mean like good war gamers totally butterfly minded um we part the vietnam thing for no good reason other than by the time we got to set, setting up a company in our heads bearing in mind we were both we both had day jobs um running businesses etc we got commercial over it so we, <laughs> we figured zulu was um a good thing to do 14 years ago and it was so we we started that. And that's how Empress started. Um, Three years ago, so what's that? That's about 11, 12 years on. um, And Empress is a lot bigger. I suddenly thought, Well, hang on, we've still never done Vietnam. And we are still not playing Vietnam. And I want to play Vietnam. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: um, I sat down, looked at it and looked around into the market and thought, Well, I still think there's an opening. Uh, so I started the Vietnam range.
0: Yeah, I mean, having been through your website many, many times over the years, uh, because I own quite a lot of your World War II models, I, I'm always blown away at the rich diversity that sort of flows through the Empress range. You guys have miniatures for a huge span of time, including ultra moderns all the way back. And you make things uh, or models for particular conflicts that you just don't see anywhere else. And of course, the quality is outstanding. So it it was very exciting for me when I heard that the Vietnam range was coming out. But it does sort of beg the question, uh, given how many different things you make, given the diversity of the Empress range, how do you decide what comes next when developing new products? Uh, I do realize that Part of that would be, from a business standpoint, what's been popular and what what's selling. And I guess part of that would be your enthusiasm as a hobbyist. How do you balance those and how do you decide? I mean, clearly you decided the Vietnam was next because you wanted it. But given how many sort of tendrils Empress uh, has gone off into as far as ranges goes, Surely not all of those are from your own personal interest. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the process? Because I know a lot of people love your company, and I think people would be curious to sort of see where you make those decisions and how that process works.
1: Well, in the in the early days, well, up until a few years ago, um, I mean, Keith was very much the um, game designer, arty one of the, the gang. Um Although all of us have art backgrounds, I was the historian, um, although we all were so, you know, but putting us in little pigeonholes. house. Um, and I was the one who used to sit there and, and say, oh, it'd be great to do this. However, Keith would also come in. So, for example, a modern range was Keith's idea. Um, to do the ultra modern range, and that was ooh, some years ago, and it's got to be 10 years ago, we did the first ones. Um, the decisions in those days particularly and still to this day really are not we don't do things commercially we do but it's not the major consideration we do things um obviously that we have an interest in so you will tend to see at the moment but you will tend to see that there's nothing pre-gunpowder everything goes bang true um we don't have ancients and things, That's not because we're not particularly interested in them, but we're more interested in things that go bang. Um, we both have a passion for certain subjects. So we both had a passion for World War II, and we were very late to get onto that, mainly because <laughs> we were both really into 20 millimeter World War II. Um, we both have a passion. Well, I have a big passion for the English Civil War, Keith, mm-hmm. a lot less so, so we looked at that. Um and we kind of look around and it, it's a kind of a there is a logic. You can look at the industry and and I've got a bit of a sixth sense. I can look at the war games industry and, and say, so, right, okay, I think that there's a logical gap here. Nobody's really playing with this particular period. Nobody's getting excited about it, but I'm excited about it. And mm-hmm. bearing in mind if I design something, um, and as I said, I'm I'm a historian by training. I have to sit and read a lot of books and go into it in great detail. And to do that, I've got to be interested. There's no point not being interested. So I look at the thing and say, okay, yeah, commercially, then that's logical to do. Um, time-wise that's logical to do, because I can I can then spend a lot of time and interest-wise it's logical to do. And then we do it. Um, we have a team of uh, sculptors, two main figure sculptors, um, nowadays one main vehicle sculptor, we've had two others in the past um, uh, we've got an animal sculptor and, and that's when we set a range up we we only ever use one sculptor on each range so you don't get a variation so you will not get um, Paul Hicks for example who's sculpting the Vietnam range
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: you will not get Another sculptor, such a other main figure sculptor, Tony Booth said he will not be doing any sculpting in that range. And Tony does the moderns, the ultra-moderns and Paul won't be doing anything to do with the ultra-moderns. And that way we don't get figure differences, appearance differences, look differences. Um, And we pick the sculptor for the range based on the look we want for the range. If that makes sense.
0: It does. And I have noticed that um, because when, obviously for this episode, but before that, as a, as a, as a buyer, I was going through your range and saying, it's funny. Some of these are a different, a slightly different style than some of the others, but you always had the continuity within the ranges themselves. I've noticed that quite a lot from the world war II models. You were talking about particular gaps in the industry and I have to say, we've done an entire episode on Romanians in bolt action. And we mentioned you guys at length because your World War II and 28 millimeter range that we would use for bolt action. Of course, you have the Germans, the, the British, the United States, which you see, you know, in a variety of companies. But you also do Romanians and Italians. Uh, so two ranges that... I mean Romanians in particular that were renowned for not having a lot of love on the twenty-eight millimeter tabletop. Was that why you chose them? Or was that a particular pet project?
1: No, I can actually say with the Romanians, they're not owned by Empress. <laughs> they're, ah. they're actually we haven't we we sell um most of what you see in the shop is Empress. There are a few ranges that are not Empress. And the connection is that they're um, small companies, they're enthusiasts who've gone off and done their own thing, but they will use, um, invariably, they're using Paul Hicks to do the sculpting. And they do not want to get involved in the retail side. So they come to us, ask us if we would sell it and we will look at it and decide whether we do. And the Romanians belong to um, a company called Zuba yes um and those romanians are his and not ours so we sell them on his behalf so i cannot take any credit whatsoever um for those and those are not sculpted by paul hicks either so it really gets complicated yeah i Um, was gonna
0: say those don't look like paul hicks's work
1: they are great models but they don't look like it yeah um they fit in but they're not they're not paul's work exactly um and that was purely by accident because we were selling everything else now what does tend to happen in those instances is that um i mean a hobby you would have noticed the hobby has always been full of enthusiasts which we were um good examples of it Mm -hmm. who come and many go in that they will come they will get excited by it they'll do it for a few years and then start to realize um that they're not going to make a living out of it
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and it's encroaching on their life because as you get to a certain level um it can suddenly take as it did with us it was We were both working or all all four of us were working long hours in our day jobs and then coming home and having to work two or three hours every evening to catch up. Um, So at that point, a lot of companies, a lot of people just say, I don't need this. Um, And it, it takes the fun out of what they're doing. So many fall by the wayside. So those few that we actually deal with invariably end up being owned by Empress. So, for example, Zuba does a number of ranges and we nowadays own half of them, I think. it is. Um, so that's a kind of a, a strange tangent um, connection to us. Um, there's not many companies like that now. It's kind of ended up only most of them. Um, and I have one here that we'd never done business before, but we bought out, which is 30 years war range that I'm sitting here surrounded by little pots full of metal figures. Mm -hmm. Um, which will be released in the next few weeks.
0: Oh, that's cool. So that's
1: another example. So we're a bit magpie-like that. We collect them up. But we only collect things, little ranges that link into Empress. Yeah, and have that Empress quality.
0: Because one of the things that... I mean, you guys are really renowned for, not only for the great uh, sculpting that you have. Clearly, you are very picky about what goes to production. But having worked in miniature companies in the past the actual production process can be very rough. And I've I've seen the best of intentions come out and just, you know, you see these beautiful greens prior to the actual production. But then when they're actually created, the casting process wrecks a lot of that detail. Your models have that detail. And from what I've seen, always have, uh, because I've looked back at several very old Empress models and it's always been there. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the I guess, the quality control? What allows you to have that quality where you don't always see that, particularly with companies starting up?
1: Well, when, when we were established, we sat down and, and um, probably over a beer and said, what do we want to get from this? What do we want to achieve? What do we want Empress to be well known for? Um, and such things at the top, very top of the list were, quality mm-hmm. um good research good history behind it all good realistic figures figures that looked like figures that weren't cartoonish and um, that looked like men because we we all sit um and we read copious amounts of books behind our hobby you know we, we very few people though a bit of a bugbear i might think more and more people are coming to the hobby that haven't read the history behind what they're doing mm-hmm. but we sit and read these books and i mean you mentioned earlier you sat reading um vietnam comics and and stuff as a kid i mean we've yeah. all been there we've all done that sort of stuff we then get on to reading proper history books and you go into detail and you read about these these people um what we wanted to put on the tabletop was war games figures that represented those people exactly We're, so therefore we wanted the best sculptors we could get. And I'm very happy that we did that. And they've been with with us since day one. They're still with us. We're all big family. Um, We all swear at each other if we need to. And and if something's something's sculpted and we we don't like it, we're honest enough with each other to um, say that. We get a bit sulking both ways, but we get there in the end. But that's quite rare because we're all tuned in. We all know what we want to do. And we design things once, we design things in a slightly strange way. Um, and it does make me laugh because, um, and if Paul Hicks is listening to this, like, um, he'll be grimacing perhaps a bit at this one. But I sit there quite funny, really, and, and and Paul gets staggering amounts of credit, and rightly so. But a lot of the stuff I I sit and design, and waving. we work from photographs. Um, we used to work a lot from photographs, not so much lately, really, but we used to work a lot from photographs um, where they're invariably, of me, um, and I will get one of the guns out of the cabinet and stand there and pose, and say, I want this pose, I want a figure doing this, da-da-da, and then send photographs, and i wearing this, carrying this, this is the gun, blah-blah-blah-blah. And um, Paul and Tony, etc. will work from that sort of information. When you get into more modern periods, World War Two et cetera, you have got a lot more photographs to work from, so you can actually yes. issue proper photographs. But you sometimes get this. I mean, I was looking, doing some research just after, yes, this afternoon, on mid-Victorian civilians, and um, there is one particular figure that's currently running at three completely different photographs. One's a pose, one's um, a face that I want, and the other one is what I want the character to be wearing. That's wild. And then there'll be some dialogue behind it, which will be carrying this type of pistol with this type of sword, that type of walking stick or whatever, um, and this type of hat. So I'll change stuff around and it can get quite silly like that, but it, it creates quite a firm base. And sometimes a sculptor will change, will quite regularly, will change it slightly, a because they'll say, mm, this looks better. Um, it's more anatomically logical um and i'll go with that or they'll say oh i found this picture we can add this and for example in the vietnam range um certainly well all sides all. Uh, but let's take american marines they would adapt their uniforms quite dramatically and they wore all sorts of kit different mm-hmm. types of grenades etc so we will sit there and suddenly paul will come back there and say hey look at this picture i could add this to this one and that to that one um and that's how we developed that so, having decided um, that from a historical perspective, that's what we wanted to do. The next big thing was quality. We wanted quality. The one thing um, that I will always argue is that the most time you can spend um, will be on painting that figure, mm-hmm. and and time is the most valuable thing you can put into a figure it's not the cost of the figure it's the time you're putting in the effort you're putting in and if you have to sit there um with a scalpel and a file and god knows what else and have to start to carve the figure almost out of a badly molded um figure then that's wasting your time and it's frustrating and it, it i hate it i hate sitting there trying to paint something and then find there's a witness line I hadn't noticed or something. Yeah. So we said what we wanted to do, as much as was possible, given the manufacturing processes of centrifugal casting, um, to create figures that came out of the moulds that had virtually no flash, um, needed very little cleanup, and you could, within a minute or two, get on and do the job. And so it was important for us to do that. It was a big thing for us. And I think we've achieved that. And we achieved it in one very simple way that, as I said before, we had a time constraint us because we had proper jobs in those days. And we have a time constraint on us, although I'm, it keeps no longer in the business. But I have a time constraint on us because we're just so busy now, we couldn't do our own manufacturing. Yeah, And I'd worked in industries previously where... Um, being known as one of the largest manufacturing companies in the world for the job I was doing, uh, we never manufactured anything. We actually owned all the tooling and we farmed it out to other companies who worked under our control. And so that's what we've done with this. And we've gone to a company in the jewellery quarter in Birmingham that is considered one of the best casters, certainly in the UK. And we go for that quality and that's not cheap, um, but it, it's important to us to hit that standard. and it also means that when we sculpt a figure we're pretty free to sculpt what we want without worrying about the constraints of can we achieve it when we manufacture it and with the some items that we've done that we have pushed the parameters on those designs quite dramatically i mean we there was when we did the um the rolls-royce armor car Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted the spoked wheels to the, the spokes to actually cross each other as they do on a real Rolls Royce, which is virtually impossible to do. Yeah, that's mind-boggling um, we, boggling detail. Yeah, uh, but we wanted wanted to achieve it, and um, we I used to uh, throw things problems at the molder, who would sort of go, "Yeah, you can't do that," and I go, "Yeah, but you can," and challenge him. And that was the one that nearly broke him and he, he did at that point come back and he solved it and they made a mould similar to one they'd been making for a jewellery company. And it's a mould that all lifts out, et cetera. And the wheel is a double section wheel that goes together, but it actually achieves the, the crossing of the spokes in the wheel. Um, and we've done other stuff. If you look at some of the reins, for example, on the Zulu Wall Range, if you look at the reins, you've got the two, the two reins that come off, but you've also got the hitching rope that goes around mm-hmm. that actually passes mm-hmm. through them um and we did that uh, 13 14 years ago no one had achieved it and i'm not where anyone's achieved it since some people still comment on it um but we pushed the parameter and that's what we wanted to do we wanted to make the figures as best we can and the history side of it has to come into play as well we we just sit and research this stuff through staggering degrees to make sure it's right, we want the soldiers to look like soldiers.
0: As someone who's literally spent the last two days uh, with a hobby knife, a pair of snips, and a lot of band aids, uh, carving in a platoon of models out of the, um, <laughs> out of their mold lines and uh, production problems, I-, I can tell you that I, I appreciate <laughs> your effort more than uh, <laughs> I. Yeah. Blood, sweat, and well, tears. As long as,
1: that, as long as that wasn't our figures, that's all right.
0: <laughs> no, it was definitely not your figures. And when I assembled your Vietnam range, I was very pleased with the fact that it was like, ah, oh, this is so easy. I think I got uh, an entire platoon of VC cleaned and ready for the tabletop in maybe an hour. Uh, it was outrageously fast, and it was very nice. So, well, yeah. to
1: give to give you some kind of idea. It, um If you look on the, on the website, when we first started doing this, no one did it, strange enough. Um, we started, sh- well, we show all the figures um, simply with a black wash.
0: I was going to ask about the, that because a lot of companies yeah. use painted models.
1: Um, yeah, they do. And uh, nowadays, a lot of companies <laughs> show their figures with black wash on. Um, mm-hmm. At the time, I don't think anyone did, but I know because uh, we originally started, Um, and we sprayed them gray, which I didn't like. Um, and we talked about other things and Keith then came up with wash, but we did it for a very specific reason and that's so that you can see the detail. Yeah. Um, because I will always argue that you can basically make a fishing weight look good with a good paint job. And if you just give something a light wash, it shows all of the detail because there are there's sculpting detail on some of those figures that i think that people when they're painting don't realize until the painting so you think what's the little bump oh it's that um which might catch some people out but that's why they're washed and that's why they're they're shown in that way um but the figures that we photograph um invariably are the masters now the master figures and the master figures are called different names but different people um but basically when you've sculpted your figure it goes into a mold and you produce a master mold mm-hmm. and then from the master mold are the good quality metal figures um you keep a stash of those and the safety copies and things like that and those are used to produce a production mold now when we've put those figures in the mold, we get those back initially, we just check and make sure everything is okay. There's not any, any issues, uh, really, but we do reject stuff. I've, I've just had delivered back today, a entire mold of figures that I wasn't happy with before Christmas, so we've had to completely redo everything. Um, we will get a set of those figures and those are what a photograph and I will literally um, file off the base to make sure it's flat, so it stands up. Mm -hmm. I will have a quick shifty, see what the witness lines are like. Invariably, there's not many issues. And then I will wash straight onto that figure and I will photograph it. So, and that's what you see. So what you see on the shop is actually what you're getting out of the pack.
0: So many times what you get when you open a box uh, or open a blister pack is not Quite what you see on the website or, you know, what you've seen in a magazine and to have that almost perfect representation of this is what you actually get. It's like going to McDonald's and having seen all the McDonald's ads and seeing all the big, beautiful hamburgers (laughs) and then ordering a McDonald's hamburger and you open the lid and go, that's not what I saw on the picture to have that and to have that one for one representation, uh, of what you're actually going to get is, it's really
1: refreshing and nice to see. It's it, so I can sleep at night because I would not, I just couldn't live with myself if I thought I was attempting to rip people off. I i don't need the hassle and I don't need the negativity. There's too much of all of that in the world at the moment. Amen. Um, it, it's just, to, it's just easier to do the job properly and then not have to worry about it. Um, we get the odd issue. I mean, we get the odd, um had a customer, I mean, very rarely, I mean, incredibly rarely do we get an issue, but we had one the other day where a customer suddenly sent us a picture and he had a World War Two German had a leg missing. Now, that is beyond rare. I mean, we'll, we'll send him out a, um, a new figure, a new pack, whatever. Um, but bizarre. But it, it, you you are getting, in the volume that we're pushing through, you are going to get the very, very rarely the odd thing. You don't, yeah. you, you really do get it. But well, if you get it just send us a photograph and explain and we'll we'll solve it immediately i'm not going to get into an argument we're here to have happy people exactly. i know that's a cliche but it just is I, I, we're not here to upset people um sadly in the last two years i mean everyone's been under an awful lot of pressure and i think yeah that's shown on social media with some people mm-hmm. raving about everything and anything from politics to god knows what else but Ultimately, if people contact us in a nice, smiley way, they will get a 110% smiley reaction back. Exactly. Um, it's as simple as that. You know, this will be nice. Um, but we, the, the whole aim of all the ranges is to go out there. And um, As I said, when we're designing it historically, um, it is interesting to do. I had one today, weirdly enough. Um, we released uh, in the Western Ranger stagecoach from the John Wayne stagecoach from mm-hmm. the late 30s. And I had a customer who suddenly sent me a picture and said, I thought this would be red, but it's green. And he sent me a, a um, colorized photograph still from the film. And I went back and said, "He's not very good colorized film. I'm not convinced that's true. And then suddenly came back with some references and said, yeah, it was green in the film, mm-hmm. um, which I've never seen a stagecoach that's green. But you get that. That's great because that's a customer interacting. And mm-hmm. I will put some pe- those pictures up on the site and say if you want the exact color of the stagecoach it's not red which is just as well because i hadn't painted mine and mine was going to be red <laughs> so, uh, he caught you just in time he, he did he caught me just in time but but i mean the research also the other thing that that we've always said as well is um and this got i wouldn't say tricky but we had we i had to sort of subtly make it clear once or twice when we sculpt ranges sometimes there is a blatantly bad side let's say um if you're doing ultra modern, I think it's fair to say that from a Western perspective, the Taliban are always going to be the baddies. Yeah. Um, But we do not do any less research on something like the Taliban than we would do on the Brits, the Yanks, the Aussies, whatever. Because that's not paying respect. And you have to. You've, you've got to accept what you're doing for those figures. Um And we'll put a lot of effort into that. We'll put effort into not just making sure they've got the right hat, but physical sizes of different nationalities. Um, we, The sculptors, um, or Paul sculpts using dollies, Tony does not he does it a different way, but Paul sculpts using a dolly and he has different sized dollies for different nationalities. Um, so for example, in the Vietnam range, you will see that the the Vietnamese, whether they're South Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, VC, whatever, are a, a shorter stature than Western troops, Americans, um, Australians, etc. Um And that's quite specific. That's done because that's exactly what they look like. Yeah. And you've only got to look at photographs um, of the period um, to see that, that um, the Vietnamese are by... Um, uh, you know, quite short at that period. I think the national height grew has grown quite dramatically in the last 34 years. It has, but
0: <clears throat> I, so I grew up in Japan and in Japan in the eighties, I was this height. I grew very, I was like a bean sprout, as my parents said, I grew quickly. And then I stopped at the age of 13. Uh, so I've been six feet this entire time, but having grown up in Japan, this height, I used to tower over a lot of the people on the train and now I'm barely an average height. Um, yeah. And it it's remarkable in the last, what, 30, 40 years, the difference in height that I've experienced uh, and, you know, in that country. And I, I know that in Vietnam, something similar has happened. It has to do with what? The changing of diets? And just, yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure what. Um, but yeah, it is remarkable, the difference. And so if you go to Vietnam now and say, well, you know, people aren't, that much shorter than I am. Again, look back, uh, and it actually was a more pronounced difference then.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, if you look at photographs of um the French Indochina in the nineteen forties-fifties, um, the Viet Minh um, Vietnamese were even shorter. Um and the French aren't particularly known as being tall. Mm-hmm. Um, as the Brits weren't particularly known as being tall at that period um, by the time say 10 years 12 years later you get to the American incursion um, and the Vietnamese against the Americans are still short but they're not as short as they were 10 years before exactly so they they developed quite dramatically and there's <laughs> there was a myth um, in fact we put it on the site because we were getting comments uh, from various areas, but there was a myth that, that North Vietnamese are a lot taller than South Vietnamese, which is purely a myth. I mean, it's nonsensical, if you think about it. You know, there's this dividing line across the country where everybody's four to five inches taller one side of it um, than the other side. It just didn't happen.
0: That sounds so, like a
1: fantasy novel, you know, that you can tell the truth. It, it was, yeah. yeah, I I think it developed out of propaganda, if I'm really honest, and it stuck, and it's still... Do, and you do get companies who... Um, will argue that case. But if you look at the, um, the Vietnamese range, you do see that difference. You know, all the Vietnamese figures are um, accurately shorter than all the Western figures for a reason, because we want it to look as accurate as we, we could get it.
0: Well, Paul, we've been talking for over half an hour and we have not actually dug into probably the the main reason you're here today, which is, of course, to talk about the Bohica rule set. Now, can you explain what that acronym is? Because I've heard you say it on the Odd Side of Dice podcast, and I want to make sure I
1: get it right. (laughs) It's uh, an American military uh, acronym that um, I have read, originates in World War II, but never found a reference for that, but certainly was in common usage in Vietnam, and certainly by the United States Marine Corps. And Bohica stands for, ready? Ready. Bend over, here it comes again. So it's a um, bit like FUBAR. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of, I like it. It's better than FUBAR. I like it better than FUBAR. I mean, yeah. it's kind of, um, oh, here we are. Same place, um, same problem. Yeah. Or different place, same problem. And it's it kind of summed up the rules in many respects and how they, what I was trying to get across. Um in that the rules were um the rules are based on a very simplistic set of modern rules, uh written by a chap called Matt Moran, that we bought um oh many years ago and we we still currently sell.
0: Is that Danger and
1: Close? They, yeah, that's the one we changed the name to make it more simplistic. And <laughs> the Danger Close was before the film came out. Um and therefore, uh, ultra modern really, that's what we aimed for. And they created, that created the basic mechanics. Um, Boheka uses those basic mechanics. It tweaks much of it, but it certainly adds a lot. So it's gone from four sides of A4 to, I think it's 70 plus pages now. Um, although there's a lot of pictures in there. And it. what I wanted to get across with the Vietnam uh, whether it's French Indochina or Vietnam is um all those conflicts, and all conflicts are horrific, uh, whatever you do. And all war is a is a challenge, not just a shooting at people, it's it's the most extreme form of business management, if you want, in that you are trying to organize everything to go correctly under extreme conditions. And Vietnam really is incredibly extreme conditions. Uh the climate's against you, the Geographies against you, the whole environment's against you, mm-hmm. and you've got an enemy that that um, is totally used to it, fighting a completely different style of war to what you're trying to fight. Um, and it must have been absolutely horrific, as all wars are, but Vietnam must have been horrific to suddenly, certainly if you're conscripted, to suddenly appear over there in and in, land in a helicopter and, and um, every bush is shooting at you.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, and so i wanted to try and get across in a set of rules those sorts of pressures um not just the shooting side but what anything else could go on and you do get a feeling when you read um biographies etc and accounts over there that it's a very lonely war in that that a lot of the soldiers even in the midst of firefights with their friends and colleagues around them felt quite isolated because the jungle could just swallow you
0: exactly and
1: anything could suddenly happen and I, I was trying to get that across now these are fantastic boasts bearing in mind you're trying to then produce it for a set of rules um but that's where the bohica thing came in I just wanted to get that continuous thing where oh no here we go again um, and I wanted in a game that to happen and I wanted in a game not just you playing an opposition player. But outside forces could come in and just mess up your day and change your entire military mission and the orders to accomplish it would suddenly change and you're now doing a completely different thing.
0: Um, Absolutely. And
1: so there's lots of things to put in there. Um, The dynamics of the rules really were to try and hit a historic perspective and atmospheric perspective to be quite fast to play. Um, and that very difficult subject really is fun. How to make mm-hmm. what is intrinsically pretty horrific fun. And so that's what I try to do. And we've been playing them for years and developing developing, developing the whole thing in our heads, really. And then put them down to paper and then just got engulfed by the whole project mm-hmm. for about three years and just kept tweaking it, tweaking it, and changing it and changing it. And then, of course, that disgustingly horrible thing that's come and arrived the plague has arrived with us, uh, mm-hmm. COVID. Um, and so what came out of that the good side is that, um, the rules are very, very, very usable for solo play. Um, I didn't know that that is very cool, yeah, because of the mechanisms. Um, so you can, and, and quite a lot of playtest games ended up being solo. Um, there was one fantastic game, one of the best games we played, which was done as a dungeon master game where you had a sort of dungeon master and three Marine players and um, one um, VC player. And it was all done over about a three week period. Um, we've all been sent in things happening. And to this day, the, um, Marine players still don't know who they were playing. And it was <laughs> me. So if they're listening, it was me. And oh, that's they, awesome. got de- they got destroyed. Bless them. But, but the dungeon master, um, Chuck called Ian Bailey, who's, who's helped a great deal with the rules, helping them play testing and ideas and suggestions, um, and didn't get upset when I ignored them. um. Uh, he played the dungeon master, so it was great fun, and we were doing that. So they work for that. They work for solo games easily. Um, and the reason they work for solo games is that when we were trying to do, when I was trying to capture that whole atmosphere, uh, there are certain things in most war games. Let's be honest, and we've all we've all will we do it. Um, we all ignore weather unless it's very relevant to historic battle. Not everybody assumes all battles are fought on a very nice, sunny day. Not mm-hmm. too hot, not too cold. Um, not too bright, not too dark. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, we ignore. That's absolutely right, yeah. Um, it's always nice, just the right amount of light. Not uh, not No heat haze. We don't want anything ruining our day. Um, and we ignore stuff like that. But in Vietnam, you can't ignore stuff like that. And I thought, well, if I start putting in whole charts of weather things, um, it's just going to bog things down. People are going to get so bored with doing this. And also, how do you do things like um, booby traps? Exactly. Because, you know, you get into this whole thing where you, you sit there, you draw a map at the table, and then the VC the player invariably is going to put booby traps in and stuff. Like this. And then they're all going to argue as to whether it's the tree on the left or the tree on the right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you had the ability to do that, but there was things like that I wanted to change. And I, I thought about, using things like chance cards but what i actually did in the end we have this um random effects chart which is intrinsic to the game and depending on the scenario you want to play um you can load that random chart up with these types of modifiers so um you can sort of roll on the chart and if you decide that you want a game that can be interrupted by weather you can make out of 20 points, you can make three of the points linked to heavy rain. And heavy rain can affect um, aircraft, it can affect radio communication, that type of stuff. You can put booby traps in there. So you can suddenly say you roll a 17 and go, oh, okay, there's a booby trap right in front of the lead figure. Um, that way, everything's random. Um, and you never know if it's gonna be pulled out, you never know if it's gonna happen. But you know it could be in there. Um, And if you play historic scenarios where booby traps don't figure, you just don't bother to put those in. Um, In the rules is a generic set. In the rules are four scenarios, uh, which are teaching learning scenarios going from quite small solo game up to quite large or as large as you want it to be urban game. And there are specific random charts created for each one of those show people what you need to do and this enables people to sit there and without too much effort buy into a game so um, whoever's designed the game or the scenario can sit there and create his own part of it and i would argue that's great fun
0: yeah absolutely that sounds like a lot of fun and it it really does encapsulate some of the unpredictability of the the battlefield particularly in that conflict i mean you mentioned someone going into the field and every bush shooting at you. I would say from what I've read, which is clearly not as much as you've read, it isn't necessarily that every some you know every bush was shooting at you. It was maybe you know every other bush and you didn't know which one or you know one in a hundred or one in a thousand. So you were constantly worried that something would happen to you. Uh, you didn't know where the enemy was. it was that unpredictability. so when things did happen, it was shocking it was uh, a surprise invariably it was just never a pleasant conflict or one as you say that was fought on a on a bright shiny sunny day where people lined up on opposite sides of a battlefield and so to have a rule set that takes that into account and that gives you the opportunity to play you know clearly there will be opportunities where soldiers will know where the the enemy roughly is and you will we are used to playing that on the tabletop but then to have that unpredictability built in as well i think really does match the era and the conflict itself it, otherwise it would be uh, fairly one-sided i mean the technology and the firepower behind the u.s military was unbelievable at that point it's even more so now but what was it they called it the mat, a mad minute Something like, yeah. and you'll correct me with the numbers here, but the average platoon of or squad of uh, soldiers in the U.S. military, um, because everyone had fully automatic weapons just about, the number of bullets expended in a mad minute in Vietnam was a, I forget the exact numbers, but it was something like what, like what they might fire in a month
1: or something in World War II. It was just well, a, it is astronomical. And, and what's interesting, and I don't think people realize this, is the more I read, I the more I appreciated. And this was true of both sides. Is that both sides could only carry a certain amount of ammunition because right. of the weight, and certainly under the extreme heat, etc., and the, and the conditions they were working in, they they just could not drag lots of ammunition with them. Um, and so what was quite common is that you would get a quite short firefight and the firefight were then not for tactical reasons but simply because of ammunition running out um and you did get troops um on both sides that would (laughs) despite what their officers wanted to do um fire as much ammunition as they could off quickly so they could actually get out of it um wow that's quite it's a whole new dimension to again now um there, you, there are no specific ammunition rules in this, and I do like ammunition rules, but no specific ammunition rules in this. However, you can put them in the random events chart in that you can suddenly say a unit, whether it's a fire team, a squad stroke section, a whatever, suddenly runs out of ammunition or is low on ammunition and you have to resupply it. Um, because, again, and this is my... my background in in the, the reason i am into these hobbies i like trying to recreate history and i don't mean that if i fought the battle of waterloo i would move everything exactly as wellington and napoleon moved it so that i could actually achieve exactly what they achieved i'm saying i would set it up with all the troops there i would then lay out the armies how i wanted to lay them out yeah and then i would refight really it under those conditions and see what what the difference would be. Could you know? Would it be the same, different, whatever? And so, I'm passionate about the historical side of it, and in the historical side, that encompasses the different um, unit organizations that you get. Because going back to this whole management theory of of the military, um, and the whole thing being a management task, is what I find fascinating. Is if you look at the Americans, for example. The Marines operated a very, very different system to the American Army. They had different size um, squads. They carried different weapons. Um, invariably, uh, after '68, they all had M16s. But the Mar- uh, the Marines didn't have an M60 light machine gun within that squad, um, whereas the Army did. Exactly. Um And so, and the the. Um, American uh, platoon, a Marine platoon, was 34 men on paper, um, an army one, I think, was just slightly under 30. Um, so they looked at the situation, dealt with it differently. So, and I find that interesting. And then if you then look at um, ANZAC units, Australians, New Zealand, they were using a British system. And they had 10 um, man sections, which is the same as an American squad, and therefore, about a 30-man, 32-man platoon. But they had light machine guns again in there with those squads. So they dealt with it in a different way completely as well. Um, and that's interesting. I and mean, you look at Alvin, and it's all over the place. I mean, they're yeah. doing whatever they want to do at any given time. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're all choosing a different way to solve that problem, which makes games, I think, interesting, and different um, and also the more you look at the vc and the nva um they aren't second-class citizens on this battlefield these guys are just as good uh, and arguably in some circumstances better they invariably with the ak-47 had a better weapon um, and they had different tactics as well yeah so it adds to the whole the whole thing and we've played countless test games with this and i can honestly tell you when we start a game we have no idea who's going to win yeah um we you know the 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 vc and nba have got just as much chance of winning as the free world forces and we the last game we played because much on uk keeps going in and out of lockdown um the last game we played uh, a couple of weeks ago we we stopped after a couple of hours playing a very large, complicated urban game, went in and had something to eat. And as we walked out, um, I was playing Ian again, as we walked out, Ian said, oh, well, about an hour and I'll have to disappear. He said, but to be honest, another two moves. And he said, um, you've won. He said, because you've absolutely destroyed me. Uh, within three quarters of an hour, he'd won. <laughs> Completely turned it round. Um, and that was, because he'd um, managed to tune in his radio and, and roll the right dice, mm-hmm. get the radio in, call in a couple of mortars, and, and managed to find out where my guys were hiding. So it's, it's a game that's interesting. It's a game that, that um, motivates. As I said, you can play it on your own. You can play it with other people. It's probably aimed at platoon level, really. I was about to get um, to
0: that. You can play this with fewer numbers of models, uh, and I will get yeah. into the skill level to get into particularly hero level characters in a second. But you do have—you uh, can go small, you can go big. But according to the write-up that you've posted, this is a roughly platoon level basic game. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you can you can play, and we had done regularly. You can play. Special Forces games, let's say with um, six Navy Seals against some local VC, um, and that works exceptionally well. You can play um, squad stroke section games with, say, 10 men aside or whatever. Um, You can play company games um, where you've got nearly 100 figures on the table that you're (laughs) commanding. Yeah. Um, That takes a bit of practice. We played bigger than that, with just two of us, and it nearly killed us, I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. But we did it, and we had a good laugh doing it. Um, But it's really, really, the balance of the game is really at platoon. It's at that 30, 35 figure um, on the table. But that also, you can add on to that um, vehicles, armoured vehicles, aircraft, helicopters, and and easily controlled, won't. it won't break you. It's quite easy and quite quick to do. And that's based on the way that um, there's something called skills and drills, which is the main driving force behind the, the rules. And which was my next drills... question, which is basically
0: how many sort of action points and comes down to how yeah. skilled something is. So it, 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 skills and drills allow players, it tells you how many sort of actions or activations that unit gets um, and how well they will do
1: using them, Correct. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So you have your unit. So something like a Navy SEAL unit are going to be skills and drills of five. Um, so that um, each one of those figures has uh, a skill and drill of five. That means they've got five action points. Um, so and each action point, so for example, you might want to crawl for two inches, I think it is, on a, uh, across some grassland. You... You may want to look, spot. That takes another action point. You you see something if you roll the right dice um, because there's something to see. Um, You take aim, careful aim. That's another action point. You pull the trigger and then you go through do you hit it or not. Um, If you miss it, you may want to then do a quick random next shot, see if you can get it with a random one, um, which is another action point. So there's your five action points. Uh, or you may want to, sort of having seen someone, decide you want to back out of the problem and go another direction. So you have a choice to do that. Now, how it operates is that with a small game of um, a Navy civil unit of, say, six people, you treat each one of those figures as a separate skills and drills. And so you might decide that um, they're all really good, they all deserve five, but You might want to make one of them because he's new to the unit, perhaps just a four. Mm-hmm. So and he has four skills in Drew, so he do four actions. Um, and you can just move it around a bit there and do that. And what you, you do is you treat each one of those individual figures as, in effect, its own little unit. <coughs> Excuse me. So when you want to um, action it, you have to roll to see who gets to operate first, you or the enemy, and he picks a unit. And um, so you roll for that. So you roll for that as an in each individual figure. If you are then using larger units, such as a platoon, you might want to break that down into um, either four man fire teams within a, a squad or a squad. We usually use a squad for a platoon. So you, you give the um, skills and drills to that squad. So a marine, fog standard marine squad, I would turn around and suggest it's invariably going to be four. So it's got four skills and drills and that's, that, that adds to the motivational role that adds to the morale role. It is used in lots of different areas. So that saves time because once you know what you're doing, you know what it is, you might decide to, when you get really good at rules, you want to give some of the squads different skills and drills so that you've got a slightly weaker one mm. in the middle there, just to add to your, your management problems. Um, that's where your management style comes in. That's where you have to start thinking about what you're doing and where you put things. But what it does mean is you can do actual historic military tactics. So you can get an M60 in and say, right, those two guys are going to sit there with that M60 and just watch down that road there while these can give fire support, if necessary, while this part of the section goes around there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so you can bring in all the tactics that they were bringing in. That's
0: brilliant. Now, I know when there have been games where certain squads have more activation points than others, um, there's the inevitable online criticism of, oh, what does that mean? They're like Speedy Gonzalez. They just do everything faster. But in, in the context of this conflict, I think it really does make sense, given that, as you say, moving, like crawling, and then spotting, aiming, and shooting, if you think about it, A highly trained, experienced soldier, like a Navy SEAL, for example, could go through and do those things very quickly. And so they're able to accomplish more things than, say, oh, I don't know, a local militia member, which, sure, they could probably crawl up, uh, spend their activations crawling up. But then they wouldn't be able to spot as clearly or even aim and then shoot because they would take more time to do that. And if you put the two side-by-side in a race, so to speak, clearly the Navy SEAL would be far faster at doing that. So it actually makes sense in the real world. So I'm actually really happy that you have that that activation point system in here. And just for a sense of scale, I know you've posted on there, you used the Navy SEAL example before of having a Skills and Drills 5. The local militia unit at the other end, would be a score of two. So they'd only have two action points to spend. Now, as you said, there's um, the category for heroes. Um, so you could even have like a Rambo if you wanted to. Uh, so for those of you who are really into the cinematic Hollywood, there is that as well, uh, which I think is great because it's got just a little bit in there depending on your play style and what you want to bring to the tabletop, right?
1: Yeah, the... the militia one the local civilian one was is a slightly different and slightly complicated thing because um in vietnam the one thing that you didn't know is whose side the civilians were on um they Mm -hmm. they invariably could be on the vc side whether they wanted to or not they were just forced to um they could at any moment suddenly whip the weapons out and start shooting at you now, that works for both sides. A lot of people immediately think, oh, yeah, well, the local civilians are going to start to shoot free world force people. But it wasn't the case. I mean, they, they weren't too happy a lot of the time about the VC being in the area. And certainly when the NBA, NBA came south, they weren't too happy about that. So they could defend their own their own villages. But what you can do in the rules, and again, this comes up and there's a scenario showing it, is you can have the um, the local civilians as civilians. And if you notice in the Empress range, I designed um, a whole set of figures to specifically do this.
0: I did. Where in fact, have...
1: I own them. Ah, there you go. Um And I, we did that very specifically, not just for the rules, but because it's, it's a whole part of Vietnam, in that you have civilians. Now, if they have got two action points, it's because really not doing much. They're just standing there working in the paddy field doing what they're doing, they're not, they don't have to be doing too much movement, it's not that exciting. They're, they're almost slightly mobile scenery. However, you have the option, if you wanted to, to put in the random um, result thing, you could put that civilians suddenly um, arm themselves and attack the nearest enemy. Uh, at that point, then you can suddenly, if that happens, you can put in there and you notch up their skills and drills to three or four. So you change it partway through the game. One of the very first test games we did when I was, I was using it, I literally just wrote that down. I didn't actually, at that point, I didn't have any civilians I was using something else. Um, and literally, first move, first roll on the random thing, and all the civilians suddenly decide that they don't like the Americans. And the whole thing flipped over. And the whole game started off with a very subtle patro- uh, marine patrol, platoon patrol, across the jungle area towards the village, just to have a look around and then get off the other side of the table. And I was trying to test movement and ended up playing a really interesting game where suddenly all of the locals picked up guns and weapons and started shooting back. Oh, um, Jesus. And that, again, links into the Bohica thing. It's that whole management change. It's the whole thing where things can change. And so what you start to play is not what you may end up playing. In fact, invariably, it isn't the game you think you're going to play.
0: I like it. I like it. Well, I I do have several questions uh, from listeners and fans of uh, both the show and of your range who have some wonderings about, uh, I mean, we've covered most of them, but vehicles are absolutely a part of this. Now, for those wondering, if you haven't looked at uh, the Empress range, not of the Vietnam models in particular, they have a wonderful range of uh, different nation models that you can use, be it Arvin, be it VC be it North Vietnamese, be it Commonwealth troopers, be U.S. There's, there's a great variety in there, civilians. But they also do a wide selection of vehicles. And I'm really happy that you've included rules for that, even the stuff you don't make. Because I know, for example, there's rules in here for aircraft and helicopters, which are vehicles you don't make, but are iconic in part of what we think about. Really, when we think about the Vietnam War, I mean, so many times people immediately think of Creedence Clearwater Revival and Huey Helicopters. And so (laughs) that is in there, kids, uh, which is awesome. So I know that recently you guys have put out the Arvin paratroopers. And before that, you put out some of the Brownwater Navy, the the U.S. riverboats with some of the crew that we might recognize from movies. Can you talk to us a little bit about what might be coming up? Because... The rules are inclusive of a lot of different types of uh, units and uh, vehicles and really cool elements of the conflict, um, both that you make and don't make, and how are you going to be expanding your range to allow players to reach into that conflict more?
1: Well, first of all, the the, the rules in effect, although I've written them, and um, therefore. There's obviously an Empress connection. It's actually a partnership between um, Empress Miniatures and Caliber Books, which is Dave Ryan. Um, so I'm not a, I am I, not I don't buy into this thing where okay I produce a set of rules therefore you've got to buy my figures. Right. Um, as, far as I'm concerned, you can buy whatever you want and, and use the rules. I I treat them as two separate entities. Now Empress um, does and. Um, Again, this is part of the Empress thing. When we do a range, we do try and do a big part of the range. We don't we don't tend to do the old thing where, oh, we're gonna do Napoleonics and you do the Imperial Guard which everybody buys and you go on board now, go on and do something else. Mm-hmm. We do keep adding to ranges all the time and all the time. And um we've got some for example, a very first range fourteen years ago. We're still releasing Zulu War stuff. We've got another Zulu War thing coming out in the next month or two. So we'll just keep adding to stuff and that's that's true of this particular area. So um, I must say, you know, that that, that that's why there are vehicles in those listings that Empress do not make. We will continue to make vehicles. We've got a duster, which is the um, twin anti aircraft uh, tank that um, was quickly adapted to be used against ground targets and appear that's due out in the next few weeks. We'll do a walk of bulldog because Arvind, we're using a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we'll do a few others. And we will continue to release figures. We've got um, another pack of Arvin because I think we need another four Arvin to make a de- decent unit. Um, we'll get back on to doing some more Australians, including Special Forces. Uh, I want to finish off the Marines because of the Marines are... I can't even remember, it's 20-odd packs of of Marines. There's still a few packs of Marines that we haven't done yet, and I've got to do them because I'm tidy-minded and I want to get those finished. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get on to other things, most notably the U.S. Army, um, which will probably be later on in the year. Uh, There's no rush. So we've got a lot of stuff coming. We've got some brown water now. We've got the PBR. We've got the Navy SEAL LSSC. Uh, which is like um, a motorboat with an awful lot of guns on it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, there's, a, there's just a lot going on on the Vietnam range. It will continue, um, not just because it's been commercially successful and it's been extremely commercially successful, but because it's I'm into it. It's a passion and I'm playing with it. And I shouldn't say that, but um, uh, I'm enjoying it. However, we've also got, there's an awful lot of other stuff Um, plan to be happening for completely different ranges over the next six to 12 months. I mean, there's lots of stuff going on at the moment. Um, Would you like to hear some of that?
0: I would. But before you get into that, I do want to touch on one thing you just said. Now, I own Mm. your M113 uh, troop transport, and I own one of your patent tanks. And they are gorgeous. Uh, Again, the quality that you would expect from Empress models. I do notice, though, they are slightly larger scale than what I'm used to in the 156 scale of bolt action. A a quiet, quick warning for those of you who are buying Empress vehicles. uh, A, they're amazing. B, they're 150 scale. Is that about right?
1: Yeah. um, We, on the... (laughs) We were slightly slightly muddly, if I'm really honest. Um, Basically, when we started to get into vehicles for um, what I would call moderns, and and I'm a bit of an old fart, so when I call moderns, it's anything after 1945. But um, when we did the ultra-moderns, which at that point was Afghanistan, um, Iraq, etc., and we were doing vehicles, we didn't do vehicles at that point. We were... But again going back to said earlier we were selling another company we bought that company and they scaled everything at 150 mm-hmm. and that's because they'd scaled their vehicles to fit our figures and our figures although described as 28 mil which is and everybody gets very confused that this 28 mil is a, a war games marketing tag it is it doesn't mean anything <laughs> no it doesn't um, it's, it's people get so wound up by this, Um, it's never meant anything. As I remember, I'm convinced it was a foundry thing that started in the early 80s, I think. But anyway, whatever. It was just, um, excuse me. (coughs) It was just really going from the old 25 mil size um, and making figures slightly bigger. Um, But then you got into all variations. So you got into heroic 28, which is really about 32 plus. And mm-hmm. uh, now that's all kind of gone by the wayside so, because a lot of people have gone big, mm-hmm. blah, 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 Or really um, big. <laughs> yeah, gigantically, almost 40 mil big. Mm-hmm. um Our figures are all of a set size. So, and this goes back to not using different sculptures on different things. So, Paul's figures are 28 mil. They are actually perfect 28 mil. They are from the sole of the foot to the eye line. 28 mil, which is how you, in theory, measure. Yeah. Tony's figures for the moderns are slightly taller. They're slightly taller by about two mils, something like that. Uh, and we were using 150 because that's what we bought the company because they were a perfect fit. So moderns to us, and that includes Vietnam, are 150. Mm-hmm. They're not 156. 156 scale and 156, 150, 148. Those are scales. Those are dead sets. You can't deviate, or you shouldn't deviate from those, although war games companies uh, mention no names, some do. Yes, But you can't deviate from it because that's the scale. Um, So 150 is slightly smaller than 148, slightly bigger than 156. 156, I think, are too small. Um, I'm not alone in that. Um, It was something that we came up with years ago. Lots of companies copy their 150 scale Mm -hmm. because 150 scale is a bizarre scale but a lot of companies certainly ultra one companies do 150 vietnam's a weird period because vietnam i call modern but a lot of people seem to be linking it into world war ii yeah um and so that's where i think 156 things started to encroach so it's one of those periods where you're starting to get companies doing 156 into it but we do uh 150 all I would say is if you look at the pictures of our vehicles and then you look at pictures of vehicles next to our figures, I think it's fair to say they look correct. And if you're uncertain, look at a picture of an actual M113 with people leaning on it and you will see our figures are exactly the right size.
0: Now, um, I, I do realize I'm speaking to you know the man behind Empress, but I am going to slightly talk about another company for about 10 seconds that when I when I I'll saw,
1: close my, I'm going
0: to close my ears. OK, what, well, I am excited about getting Hueys on the tabletop. Uh, I, I love the idea of an air cab force and God, they're just so iconic. I have to have Hueys to go with my painted Americans. So I was slightly concerned because I really wanted to take some of the new Rubicon Huey models that are coming out in 2022 and add them to my existing Empress Force. Turns out uh, Empress, who normally are faithful on the nose 156 scale for bolt action World War II vehicles, are slightly larger in the Vietnam era. Their models are slightly bigger than what you would normally expect from the World War II range, from what I understand from looking at their social media and talking to folks. So from what I understand, and of course I have not held the Rubicon Huey in my hand, But the Rubicon plastic vehicles will theoretically scale with the Empress ones pretty well um, because they're slightly larger as well. So for those wondering, saying, oh, well, now I I can't buy the Empress ones because they won't match with the Rubicon Huey, which I know a lot of people are excited about. Don't worry about it. Theoretically, uh, from what I understand, and of course, don't sue me if I'm wrong, but pretty sure... Uh, they do match. In fact, I have bought Empress vehicles and I'm about to buy more for the very reason in that I can get them in, paint them, and they'll be ready when I can eventually get the upcoming Hueys. Um, And I am counting on them scaling together, if that makes sense. So anyway, switching gears back, Bohica, 1945 to 1970 Dash. It is a rule set that is not—because the Vietnamese conflict, you know, it starts with the French uh, post-World War II in Vietnam. And then if you've watched uh, any of the Ken Burns Vietnam series, they do a very good job of, I think, explaining the overview of how the French left it, the U.S. stepped in, and that overall conflict, of course, you can go into way more detail with reading, but— the conflict really does go on for a very long time, and i I'm, I'm glad to see that the Bohica rule set really does allow you to play from 1945 all the way up to uh, Vietnamese independence, right?
1: Yeah, um I mean, the Vietnam War, you immediately think of the American incursion but exactly it, it's, the, the The French were there longer, and of course it, it was a French colony um what's fascinating about the french part of it is it's the same terrain it's fighting intrinsically the same enemy although it's got more of a connection with world war ii in the bolt action rifles etc um but it, it's a french army that obviously is of an earlier period probably more world war ii than modern in style um, incredibly cool looking, I have to say, the French do look staggeringly cool, and you get French Foreign Legion troops, a lot of French Foreign Legion troops, and the French had a different attitude to local troops in that although the Americans segregated um, South Vietnamese troops, the and etc., the French didn't, they integrated them into French units, certainly for, um, the um, French Foreign Legion. Um, so you have a very different, again, very different way, very different style of doing it, it's A similar war, it's not the same type of war, but it's the same sort of problems. And in many respects, what the Americans are fighting with the NVA and the VC learnt their craft against the French, exactly. And a, and a lot of things were going on. And, and um, um, to plug Empress, I mean, how could I? It's shameful, really. But we do a <laughs> um, French Indochina range, so you, exactly, you could, you, you've got Viet Minh and you've got um. French paratroopers for Diem Ben-Fu. But it is a very, very interesting area. And um, the plan is... Um, the plan is with Boheka is, if it's commercially successful, and bear in mind that it's kind of a book are printing it all, if it's commercially successful and sells, the, the hope is to do some scenario books. And the, the scenario books will be um, not just offering obvious scenarios but they will add to the rules and so they there will be a scenario book that will have a number of scenarios so you know one on the straight an australian scenario and a, an american um aircraft scenario but it will also have a section on it um, where there are um specific sections on adding new orders of battle for example details more on perhaps arvin but also perhaps um, or will be more on French Indochina um, and I've got three planned ready on paper so, and the aim is to have one big scenario in each one which is I'm going to call um, the scenario to aspire to because a lot of people are not going to be able to 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 do it but it will it will be able to encompass. so for example there'll be a um, a brown water navy scenario is the theory where you've got a large river and there'll be landing craft, bring all the boats in, helicopters, the whole thing. And Although a lot of people won't be able to achieve that unless they're in a club or they can spend a lot of money and get it all sorted quick, it will have sections in it that is information-based so that people know how to use it and perhaps then make it a lot smaller. Exactly. Um, and so the French Indochina part of it, again, will play will figure a lot more in that that's that's the plan that's the hope that's where i hope we're going with it
0: brilliant well i know that people are (laughs) going to be really unhappy if i don't get back to what's empress doing soon and i will get to that in a second i just want to make sure we cover bohica properly first just i'm gonna skate over this quickly but i do want to draw an underline under the fact that you have rules for communications in there booby traps snakes Vehicle mechanical breakdowns, command uh, and control uh, mechanics, medics, artillery, all kinds of weapons, and so much more. There's going to be linked scenarios, and this is what I'm most excited about. It's a rule set that is, and of course, again, I haven't played it yet, but I'm very excited to, uh, is my favorite kind of rule set, which is easy to pick up, but has the tactical depth that will keep you coming back. I love it when people say that about a rule set because though I do enjoy a nice, tight, granular rule set as well, having a nice, tight, easy to pick up, have an enjoyable game, but have the tactical depth to keep you on your toes, that I like too. I've recently played a couple of games that you know I spent more time with my head in the book than thinking about what I'm doing actually on the tabletop. And yet, that's fine and all, but that's not my style of game. Bohica sounds exactly like what I love to play, and I'm super excited that it it is easy to pick up. It's ca- it's got that depth, but it's also got some. It's got that element that heaven forbid is fun. So fun, fast, furious, all the things I like in a game. Can't wait. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, if you look at Empress's website. As you're listening to this, uh, theoretically, you know the the shipping gods willing, Bohica will either be on the Empress website or is about to be on the Empress website. So look for it there, guys, because I'm going to be getting it the second I can pre-order it. So, um, but also, um, and it's not Cavalier books. I misread it, um, so my notes are wrong. Calibre. It, Calibre. Caliber, caliber, caliber,
1: caliber, calibers a Caliber's a small musket.
0: There you go. So, Cavil I can't even say it right Caliber. now. Yeah, Caliber. That C-A- Caliber.
1: Caliver Caliber Books, based in the UK. Um, Dave Ryan. Uh, in fact, I heard your last podcast, um, and Dave was mentioned in that, I believe, to the minifigs. Oh, yeah, there you go. I did
0: promise, let's get back and shift back to Empress, You did hint that you might uh, give us a little peek behind the curtain. What can we look forward to? Because with a range as wide and as diverse as yours, it could be anything. And it's going to be awesome, no matter what you put out. So what are some things that we can look forward to?
1: Um, Across the board, then, we've got, um, for the last year, I suppose, you have also been releasing um, British troops for the British Army of the Rhine. Circle about 1980. Um, they are kind of finished. They've got to a position now where, again, there's, oh, bloody 20-odd packs of those. Um, and we are just about, within the next few weeks, to re- start to release the Soviet paratroopers Ooh. who shoot at them. We have all the vehicles for both sides of that, which is brilliant. Chieftain, got everything. Um, so we've got Soviet paras coming out. We've also very soon after we will have some packs of British SAS stroke SBS that will work for Europe but will predominantly work for the Falkland Islands. Nice. And of course we are coming up to a big anniversary for the Falkland Island conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll be moving uh, that particular range, we'll be moving into that area and the plan is to do some, or um, well, an awful lot of paras that work for the Falklands and also work for Europe, and we will do some Argentinians, uh, which I'm quite looking forward to because I'm again I I, I haven't really looked around, but I, I don't remember anybody doing some very you know that many or interesting Argentinians, but we want to do some special forces Argentinians and Argentinian troops, and again been collecting a lot of photographs to get that real look um and i'm lucky enough and i do like when we do this research to talk to actual veterans and if you take um <laughs> weirdly if you take vietnam i actually have living in uh, my village here in the middle of the cotswolds in england uh, a vietnam vet who arrived just after tet and did his tour of duty um in the front line as a radio operator uh, radio operator in the marines and he was full of useful information. Great fun, and I've got a, um, I know quite a lot of people uh, who were in Falklands, and um, I managed to miss that one. I'm happy to say. Um, so uh, Falkland stuff. We have got some uh, civilians for the Indian Mutiny or mid-Victorian period that we're just about to start working on. Nice. Um, we have got some more vietnam stuff that i'm not going to mention it's a bit of a secret we don't like the competition to to get too excited but Mm -hmm. i am um we have got some more world war one artillery um we've got the royal horse artillery 13 pounder limber gun crews everything we've also got two german limbers and two german guns coming out for world war one what else have we got? We've got loads. This is so much. we we'll, we'll get some more Western figures out from based on Hollywood films. Um, we've got, oh, we've got a Gatling Gun Zulu War Limber, which is virtually all done. Just need to do the crew. That's all ready to go. So it will just keep tumbling out of the old sausage machine continuously. That's
0: awesome. Now, I definitely want to talk to you about Western models, but I know our time is sadly at a close, But you do an excellent job of talking to our buddy Ian on the Odd Sided Dice podcast. If you guys, if you go to their episode, you don't know, man, you weren't there. If you go to that episode, (laughs) uh, Ian asked Paul a ton of great questions. And yes, we've unfortunately had to retread some of that ground just because, just to lay the framework for getting to Bohica today. But there is some excellent content in there. If you have not listened, particularly around the Western Range, Paul, yeah, I I got super excited about your Western models and uh, finding about uh, Lee Marvin's backward pistol belt. But again, if you want more (laughs) information on that, guys, go to the Odd Side of Dice podcast. Please listen to that episode. It is a great one. But Paul, man, thank you so much for taking the time. You have been on uh, for a lot longer than you promised, and you've been such a great sport. You've had so many great things to share with us today. I can't thank you enough. Cheers, man.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. It was great fun. Um, I can go to bed now.
0: <laughs> and I'm going for a second cup of coffee, and that's how time zones work.
1: Uh, <laughs> no, it's been great fun. It's nice to talk to you. It, 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 it really was very enjoyable. I I, I I do like sitting having a nice laid-back chat, so it's uh, it's Good Uh Paul, good
0: company. just to verify... I am able to get the Bohica rule set from Empress directly. When they get it, comes it from
1: out. Empress or Caliber books, you've got a choice. Um, I haven't because you're based in Australia spoken to Nathan yet. If he wants some copies, I'm sure he will. That's an Nathan's elite support.
0: miniatures where I've actually bought yeah. most of your models from. I do love elite miniatures, a little plug there. Great customer yeah. service. Um, I love those guys.
1: Nathan's, Nathan's our Australian distributor and does a fantastic job and part of the Empress family. So um, I would expect him to to take some. Um, If you're in the US, again, I'll talk to Steve at Age of Glory Mm -hmm. um, to see if he's going to take some. I will be stunned if he didn't. I'm sure he will. And I'll be talking to uh, the guys in Europe as well. So anybody in Europe who is listening to this doesn't have to worry about that disgustingly Brexit-y thing. And all the taxis that the EU are slapping on you, because mm-hmm. we can ship it out to distributors and you can buy it in-house. Brilliant. Well,
0: I'm excited to uh, to get it as soon as possible. So I may get it from multiple sources and see which one gets it here first. <laughs> Not that uh, shipping times to Australia get me down or anything. But uh, look, I can complain about uh, post till the cows come home. But again, thank you so much for coming on, Paul. I can't wait to get Bohica in hand. Your models are gorgeous. I can't wait to put them on the tabletop with your official rules. It's going to be awesome.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Cast Ice today. I know I've been getting requests to cover Vietnam-era content for a long time. There will be lots more coming. I'm very excited about, uh, now that I have painted models, to put them on the tabletop, as you've been seeing from the Facebook page. It's why I've been building the terrain. I am beyond excited to put this rule set on the tabletop, and you will be hearing me talk about it again uh, once I have. But... If you have any questions, any feedback for the show, please go to Cast Dice on Facebook. That's C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. If you message the page, you're guaranteed a response by me. Hi, my name is Brad. Just remember, it might take a couple of hours. I do live in Australia, and there is uh, time zones, and uh, I do have a day job that doesn't allow me to check Facebook. So... Ladies and gentlemen, as always, thank you for joining us, and thank you for coming with us on this journey as, our, as we take our first big step into the Vietnam era. I'm excited. And I guess that just leaves what our old buddy Casey always says. When you're playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Thank you.